Well, good morning again to everybody. Thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging out. If you're here in person or watching online or listening later, it's great to be with you. We're thankful that you've chosen to take part of your week, part of your Sunday, and you've come to worship with us and learn together. My name is Corey. If we haven't gotten the opportunity to meet, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And before we get started, I have to make sure that I say happy birthday to my wife. It is her birthday today. Um, and so she's actually not here because one of our kiddos was pretty sick the other night. And so we said, we don't want to give that sickness to you guys. So she stayed at home. So happy birthday if you're watching from Love You. Um, but yeah, if you get a chance, go ahead and shoot her a text and say happy birthday to her today. But back here in, in church and in what we're doing over the course of the year, we've had this banner up behind us uh, that says revo- resolved, revolved, resolved uh, for this calendar year. And what we've done over the first, uh, I think it's 11 weeks now uh, of the year is we've talked about church. We talked about for the first four weeks of the year, we talked about what church meant to us, what what we held as uh, important as a church body specifically, and now we've been going through Revelation, and we've talked through the first six churches that we get to in Revelation. And when you think of Revelation, you think end times, you think all the stuff that comes later, but really in that first section of Revelation, what we get is instruction to churches, churches that had existed for a couple of decades, uh, and Jesus is having a conversation with John about what these churches should do. So again, Jesus had ascended into heaven, you know, like 60 years before this. And then he's back and he's having this conversation with the Apostle John, who, by the way, is stuck on an island called Patmos. It's kind of like island jail. Now, some of us today would be like, I would take island jail. Like, you send me somewhere warm and nice, and I would stay there for a while. I'd be okay with that. Little different situation, right? And so he's there, and he gets this revelation from Jesus. That's why we call it that. And he gets these instructions that he's supposed to give to the churches. And and after we hear from each church... Uh, or after we hear what Jesus has to say to each church, he says, those who have ears, let them hear. That's Bible talk for everybody listen, okay? So it's not just that these specific churches are just getting these specific instructions. They're very specific to the location, as we've learned and we'll see today. But there's also this aspect of everybody that's hearing this, everybody that's reading this. If you are someone who finds yourself in church, you're a follower of Jesus, you can listen to this and understand this as well. And so for the last time, we'll throw the map up here for you. So you see all the different places we've gone. We started in Ephesus and we kind of made a fish hook up and around. And so we're going to land today in church number seven, which is the church of Laodicea. And as you, maybe, as we've gone through these seven churches, Laodicea is actually the one who gets the most attention normally. They're the ones who, when we go into this passage, maybe you'll say, oh, if you've been in church for a while, maybe you've heard this passage before, you've heard this. There's actually some stuff in this passage that has been mistaught at times, and I've been guilty of that. I used this passage at one point in college. I was teaching teenagers, and someone came up to me afterwards, an older uh, a mentor of mine, and just said, hey, you actually missed that a little bit. So there's times where we just, like, we have to learn from that stuff, and we miss the mark. And so I'm going to hopefully learn from that, you know, all those years ago, and be able to walk us through this and be able to go through and understand exactly what Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea today. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn turn in your Bible, turn on your phone, turn on your tablet. Uh, by the way, we love when you use 
uh, the follow-along tab. So if you go to our website, mygracefamily.church, and you go to the second tab down, it says follow-along. If you click that, it gives you all the notes, it gives you all the verses, you can send in a prayer request, and you can even ask a question. So if I say something that's confusing, you can go, hey, Pastor Corey, what, what does that mean, right? And we can have a conversation about that. I can help you understand, or I'll, I'll look for an answer or something like that. And so if you go there, that's a good place for you to go every week. It's the easy place to follow along with where we're going to be. So in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. So we're going to go through all through the passage. We'll read everything, and then we'll come back through and walk step by step. So Revelation 3 verse 14 says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. Verses 15 and 16. I know all the things you do, that you are, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Verse 18. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Verse 19. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Verses 20 and 21. Look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And verse 22, anyone with ears, right, to hear, must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And so as we've gone through all these seven churches, we've, we've asked the question, what was it like? So what was life like in Laodicea? What was it like in this specific location? What was their culture? What was happening that Jesus actually addresses and has a conversation with them about what's going on in their town? There's, there's a few very specific things we want to know about Laodicea. Laodicea was actually a really good place to live. They were actually kind of like the good neighborhood with the good school district and the property value was going up. Okay, so everybody that wanted to be like wanted to be there and it was a good thing to be there it was a it was a popular place to be and they had um some exports and some things that were actually really specific to them that people wanted the first thing was they had the ability to make black wool now we don't know if they had some way of having like they had black sheep and so they just used that and so they were able to make these garments and you're like well why is that why is that special? Well, back then, right, most sheep are white, and so you'd have these lighter colored garments, and they would, um, they would then dye them if they were going to make them another color. This is why purple garments were expensive. You see that in royalty? You think that way, right? And so you saw that because that was a more expensive process. And so if you were going to pay the cost, not just for the wool garment, but you were going to pay it then for someone to dye it and make it a different color, that was more expensive. So if you're going to spend money on that, that was, that was, that was a more popular thing. You probably had more money if you were doing that. And so they had this black wool, and so people wanted that. It wasn't something that was around a lot. I mean, you didn't wear a lot of black in the hot sun, but you, it was there. If you wanted it, you could get it. And so that was one of the things that made them a popular place and something that made them a lot of money. The other thing that they made was they had this ointment or salve that you would put on your eyes and maybe even into your ears, and so if you think of like little things like if you have pink eye or you have just like a eye infection or something like that, you, you would rub this on and it would take that 
away. And so that wasn't something that was around everywhere. There was some way, somehow, this location, somebody came up with it, somebody created it. And so they would put that on. And so people that had those ailments, if they were close to Laodicea or they wanted to get rid of this thing, they would go there and they would get this. And it was something that was popular for them. So these two things specifically showed up and were things that made people money. Right? If people are going to come into town, you have something they don't want, you can charge money for it. And so it was fairly lucrative to be in those businesses in Laodicea. And the other thing that was specific to them, though, even though it was a great place to live, even though there was a decent amount of money in the region, they did not have a good source of water. So they had to get their water from other locations. And so they actually had two different aqueducts that would run from two different locations. One of those locations would come from a hot spring. And so that water, when it would come down, would start as hot water. The other one was from a regular spring. So usually spring water is fairly cold. And so they would, that water would start to come to them. By the way, if you Google like Laodicea aqueducts, you can find pictures of this. They still exist today. And the thing was with these, they, they actually traveled for miles. One of them is six miles long. They built this thing so that it would travel to them so that they could have water. Now, if you were paying attention, as I read... This passage, you're hearing some of these specific things that Jesus has mentioned, and we're going to come back to them and kind of flesh them out a little bit. But this is one of the reasons we believe Scripture to be true. As Jesus is having this conversation with these individual churches, we've seen all along the way that he specifically addresses these issues with these churches because in their context, they understand it. And it's not just a blanket statement. It's not just like, hey, church, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that, right? There's these specific things where he says, this is, this is the life that you're living. This is what's going on in your understanding. Here's how I'm going to help you understand me. And here's how I'm going to make me and my church make sense to your culture. And so let's go back and dig through this a little bit. We'll go back to Revelation 3, and we'll, we'll start with verses 15 and 16. He says, I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this is kind of like Jesus is not mincing words, right? Says if you if you're like water to me, I will just spit you out. Like you are gross, right? And and what the understanding is here is that lukewarm is useless. Lukewarm's no good. And they understood this because when they start, they had these aqueducts, right, bringing water to them. One starts hot, one starts cold. Guess what? You have hot water or cold water that travel through an aqueduct that was built thousands of years ago. You're going to lose that temperature. You're going to, by the time it gets to you, it's going to be pretty lukewarm. So when they got water, it was, maybe there was a little bit, maybe you could tell the difference a little bit, right? One was a little warmer than the other one's a little colder. But largely, it was fairly lukewarm. And we know this today. If you have hot water, if you can boil water, you can cook food, you can make coffee, you can make hot chocolate, you can make tea. You can do a lot of things with hot water. Cold water, hot day, right? You want to drink cold water. Somebody hands you a lukewarm water on a hot day, you're probably like, I'll take it, but I wish this was colder, right? There's uses for hot and for cold. And Jesus says, you've, you've come to the point where you are neither. Now, this is where sometimes this passage actually gets misused. Because it's easy for us, it was easy for me, to read this passage and go, oh, he's talking about hot and cold like on a hot streak or a cold streak. Like I'm, I'm doing really well. If you're, you're on fire, right? You're doing well. You're doing good. You're hitting on all cylinders. And then if you're cold, you, you can't make the shot or you're not doing well. Or you're making poor decisions. You've hit a cold streak. And so it's easy sometimes maybe for us in our culture to think that way. But they would not have understood that picture. And so what can be easily misunderstood, and I've heard people talk about it this way, and I did it by accident, 
that we would say, oh, it, you're hot or you're cold. I'd rather you be hot or I'd rather you be cold when it comes to me. I'd rather you be worse. I'd rather you not just be in the middle somewhere where you're just neither on fire for me or cold for me, right? That's where I would want you to be. That's not the reality of the passage. The reality of the passage is he's saying, if you're lukewarm, you're not doing me any good. Hot water has a purpose. Cold water has a purpose. They knew this. The aqueducts would bring it to them. He says, the lukewarmness that you are existing in is no good. Then he says, I'm, I'm going to, it's so bad to me that I, I would just spit you out. And there's actually a connection to their understanding of that water that came from the hot springs. It had chemicals and things in it that they shouldn't drink. And so even that water to them was not potable. And so if they drank it, it was actually going to make them sick. And so he says, I, I would spit that out. I, I had a job for a while, one of my middle jobs, like while I was church planning and I wasn't full-time. I actually had to work um, with water at a air guard station, okay, like of all the random jobs to have. But if, if you've ever been to Horsham, there's an old military base there that used to be Air Force and Navy. They both used to be there. The Navy used to run the whole water system when they were there. And then the Navy left and said, we don't want to be here anymore. So the Air Force said, well, we don't want to worry about the water, so let's get a government contract to do it. So I knew the guy, I know the guy, who still has the contract to run the water side of things. The issue they have in Horsham is that they had um, rocket fuel stuff that they could, if you mixed it with water, it would put out the rocket fuel fires when it was an active airstrip. Well, they accidentally let that chemical seep into the ground. So anywhere in Horsham you go, they tell you, don't drink the water. Now, there's guys that are, where I met on the base there, and they're like, I've lived in Horsham my whole life, and I drink this water. I'm fine, right? So, like, who knows? But they would come in, the guys that, like, were got transferred to the base or whatever, they're like, oh, did you guys make the water good to drink yet? And we're like, that's never going to happen, right? We can't just take this stuff out. But what our job was was to keep a chlorine level high enough so that you could use it to, like, wash dishes, and you could use it to shower, you could use it to clean things, but you shouldn't ever actually just turn on the faucet and drink it. That would be bad for you. And so that was the picture that Jesus, they knew. They knew, and Jesus is using that for them to understand. Even though that hot water, even if you got as hot, like, it wasn't going to be good to drink. He says, lukewarm water is so bad. This water that you're giving me, this water that I'm comparing you to, is no good. There has to be a change or else I will spit you out. And he goes on in verse 17 to say this. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need anything. And you don't realize you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, when we read this verse, we should, this should make us pause. And, and we should really contemplate what's happening in this verse. Because I, I understand that our, um, our tendency is to look at other people and to say, well, look at their job or look at their boat or look at their house or look at their whatever they have and go, I'm not, I don't have that, so I'm not rich, they're rich. But the reality is for most of us that are sitting in this room, for most of us that would even call this community home, most of us, not everybody, most of us, we are in the percentage of the world that would be able to make this first statement, I am rich. Because when we think about, like our perspective is, oh, well, the person down the street from me has more money, so I'm not rich, they're rich, right? But in reality, when we look at the whole percentage of the world, what we have access to, how we feel we're going to get the things we need, whether we have what we need, we are in the percentage of the world that would say, I am rich comparatively to the rest of the world. And so when Jesus says, 
to the group in Laodicea, you say, I am rich, I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Think about the reality of what we have and don't have. There are things we want, sure. But do we have everything we need? And what's happening for the church in Laodicea is because they have the money, because they have what they need, they've fallen into a trap. And he says, because of this, because you say I'm rich, I have everything I want, I don't need anything. He says, you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And their wealth, their prosperity has made them blind to their relationship with Jesus. This is where we have to, again, we have to pause and we have to say, is my ability to provide for myself or is my prosperity or is my bank account keeping me from understanding where my relationship is with Jesus? Now, I want to make one thing clear, that every, every blessing is from God. There is nothing we have that is a blessing that is not from God. So everything we have, like everything you see here, the fact that we have a nice warm building to be in, the fact that we drove here in cars, the fact that we had clothes to put on, we have food in our refrigerator, all of those things. Maybe you have gas in your car, maybe not, right? All of those things are blessings from God that we get from him. Everything good, every blessing is from God. But here's what we have to understand. Here's what the the church in Laodicea didn't get or they fell into the trap of, is that not every blessing is indicative of our obedience. It would be easy for us to say, well, I have what I need. God is blessing me, and therefore, I have been following him well. Now, could that be true? It's possible. But when we look around the world, are there people that have followed Jesus and they're still struggling to get some of the things that they need? Absolutely. And so just because we have what we need doesn't mean that we are obeying him and following him fully the way that we should. And this is the trap that the church in Laodicea fell into. And if we look at Matthew 5, yeah, Matthew 5 verse 45, it says this. Then you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. The sun shines on bad people and on good people. He sends rain on those who are right with God and those who are not right with God. So this is why sometimes in our culture and just around the world, we see people that we could go, that is probably not a good person, right? They've said bad things, they've done bad things, and yet they see prosperity. Prosperity can be a byproduct of just where you are in the world and where you were blessed to be born. It doesn't always mean that God is happy with us. And that can be a blinder, a hindrance. Our prosperity can be a hindrance to understanding our relationship with Jesus. And here's what I know to be true. That dependence on God is elevated when our hands are empty, not when our silos are full. Our dependence on God is elevated when our hands are empty, but not when our silos are full. Now, I can say the word silo because most of us probably drove past a farm on the way here. Let me use a different word. Dependence on God is elevated when our hands are empty and not not when our bank accounts are full. So if you had woken up this morning and you didn't know what you were going to eat, you didn't know what you were going to eat or what you were going to wear, right? There would have been maybe, and you were a follower of Jesus, there would have been a prayer, right? God, please provide for me what I need today. Most of us probably woke up today and didn't even think about that. Our dependence on God in that moment when we woke up for what we were going to eat was less than somebody who didn't have it. And the reality is that our dependence on him should not change even when he blesses us, but that's what happens. And so the church in Laodicea had become lukewarm because they had everything they needed, and that became a hindrance to them. They missed the fact that they still needed to be dependent on God even when their bank accounts were full. I think, even if you feel like your bank account's not full, right? 
Just think about the fact that your needs are met for the most part. Is that becoming a hindrance in our relationship with God or are we still seeing our dependence on him as one of the primary things in our life? Verse 18, he goes on to say this. So I advise you, I love that. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. You see how Jesus is is doubling down on those things they understand, the culture that they get. I love how he says this. So I advise you, like, do you let, this is a question I thought of myself, right? Do we allow Jesus to be our advisor? Do we, do we communicate with him? Do we allow him to have a say in the decisions we make? He goes, I advise you to ha- buy gold from me. I advise you. Then you uh, also buy white garments from me and ointment so that you can see. These are, these are touches, by the way, to three other passages in Scripture that I want to go to just really fast. So I'll just put them up on the screen. And this is only sections of the passages. But 1 Peter 1.7 says, so that, you will be test the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that per- the, sorry, I can't read today, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So why does Jesus say, buy gold from me? He's saying, don't live an easy life. Don't live a life that is simply comfortable. But, and don't just see rich as being full, a full bank account, right? See rich as a life that is dedicated to me and that is continually growing towards me, even though we may walk through difficult situations. Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They understood those garments, those black garments, those, that black wool that was going to make them a lot of money. And Jesus says, don't depend on that. Don't depend on the things that you're able to just sell and make money. Depend on what I'm going to give you, the purity that I'm going to give you, that forgiveness that I'm going to give you, and clothe yourself in that. And then Luke 4.18, he says, He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and the blind will see. He says, you get that there's this ointment you guys have that helps people. It doesn't cure blindness, but it helps the eyes, right? He goes, you, you need to not be blinded by the things that you have around you. You need to see clearly what the relationship is to be between me and you. And ultimately, Jesus is asking a very difficult question. He's basically asking, will you trade everything you have for all that he is? Will you not depend on the things around you that make you money? Will you not depend on your full bank account? Will you not depend on the prosperity that you've seen? And will you, are you willing to even like give that up if I asked you to to follow me? to not mince your priorities and to find the place where you need to be. Verse 19, he goes on and says this, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. I I think this is so helpful because Jesus doesn't have to say this. He doesn't have to say, by the way, I'm doing this because I love you. He could just say, I'm God, do what I say. Honestly, that's what he could say. And yet he takes this moment in verse 19. It says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. He says, so don't go the direction you are continuing to go because I know where that goes and it's not good. So turn around. Let me lovingly tell you, turn around. Come back to where you were. And one of the other weeks, right, we talked about don't lose your first love. He's saying you, there was a time when you were diligent. You were not lukewarm. So stop being lukewarm now. 
verses 20 and 21, he says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. This is another section of this passage that we might be, our, our minds might be tempted to go one place when actually, as I studied it, we should go a little bit of another place. And when we see times when Jesus stands at a door and he knocks, sometimes we, we think it's uh, like our house that he's knocking on, or our heart that he's knocking on, or our property that he's knocking on, right? He's, he's approaching us. But here's what we know. He's already talking to people that are generally followers of Jesus. They're a part of the church. So they've already made the decision for the most part, right? Maybe everyone there didn't make this decision yet, but for the most part, these are people that have said, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. So they've already made the decision to say, Jesus, you can come into my life. You, you have a say in who I am. So they've already made that decision. So what door is he knocking on? If we go back to, I think it's Matthew chapter 25, there's the parable of the talents. And in that parable, Jesus talks about how the master is going to go away. And before he goes away, he gives to the workers the talents. And he says, listen, here's what I'm giving you to use. I'm going to leave for a little while. And when I come back, I want to see what you've done. That's more the reality of what's happening. That Jesus has given, right, they've decided to follow Jesus. Here's your talents. I'm going to walk away for a little bit. Now I'm back and I'm knocking on the door for you. And what he says is, right now, for the church of Laodicea, because they've become lukewarm, they're not opening the door. They're, they're existing in their relationship with Jesus in identity, but they have not continued to follow him the way that they should. And he's coming back now and saying, what have you done? And he's knocking on the door. He says, if you let me in and you let me see what you've done and we connect, he says, we can sit and we will have a meal together as friends. What happens when you have a meal together as friends? You get to know each other better. You know them. You get to hear their stories. You get to understand their life. So Jesus says, if you, you let me come back in, like that, that will build our relationship. It will, it will help us get through this idea of lukewarmness. It will cause us to move into a place where you are not lukewarm anymore, but you have to open the door. And so the question for us is like, what are we doing? Are we holding the door shut? Are we not opening it? Have we just gone, you know what, I'm happy with where I'm at in my relationship with Jesus, and now I'm just going to kind of go, okay, like I think we're good. Uh, I'm just going to exist in this place. I don't really want to hear the knocking. I don't really want to take that next step. Last week we talked about the open door that Jesus says, you've got a door, walk through it, keep going. Or do we shut it and say, I don't want to do this. But, but look at that. Like Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. We talked last week about the promises that Jesus makes. That's a pretty big promise. That's a, that to me is a pretty motivating thing to say, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. So we can continue in the space. I mean, remember, Jesus didn't say, do what I say or I mean, he did say spit you out, but he goes, I advise you, <laughs> right? If you're going to, he goes, it's not like we're going to lose our salvation over this, but he's like, if you're going to follow me, like this is what you need to do. He says, and the promise is this, that when we get to the next place, right? When we get after this life, that you will sit with me on the throne just as I sit with my father. So I came up with three three things for us to kind of, plug this into and the way we can understand this passage. The first thing is this, and I said how not to be lukewarm, right? First of all, don't find your identity in who you are and what you have accomplished. This is very easy to do. It makes, I'll be honest, right? It makes me feel good that I completed certain degrees that I completed. 
It makes me feel good that I've done certain things in my life. And those drives are not bad. Those accomplishments are not bad. And you have some of those same things, and we should be pursuing them because they're God-given. But the easy thing for us to do, and this is what happened to the church in Laodicea, is that what they had done, what they had accomplished, what they had built up, what they had stored away, started to define them, and they found their security in that. And Jesus says, that's not what you are to do. That's not the identity that I have given to you, and that is based on you and not on me. When we find ourselves in that place, it it hinders us from understanding our relationship with Jesus because we're too focused on us and not focused on him. So don't find your identity in who you are or what you have accomplished. We had a conversation on Wednesday night with, with some parents of teenagers about what it means to find your identity and what it means for teenagers and kids to understand that and what that means and where we go to find our identity because identity right now is very fluid. The argument and the conversation we need to be having is, is our identity founded on Jesus? Let's start there and not define it by other things. I could talk about that for a long time. We've got to keep going. Okay, number two. Take steps in faith that require God to show up. It's very easy when we have what we need to not take steps that, are, that we need God to show up in order to make them make sense. It's very easy to say that I'm just going to live with what God has given me and I don't need to put myself in uh, dangerous situations because I have what I need. Why would I do that? And what I'm saying is what I believe to be true is that the more God has given us, the bigger the step of faith needs to be. And there are times where we have to take steps and we have to do things that other people around us would go, that doesn't make a ton of sense. I know somebody who decided he had a very lucrative business. He decided that he was going to sell it all and take a pay cut of 80%. Now, anybody around would have looked at that and gone, what are you doing? (laughs) That makes zero sense, right? And he just said, this is what God's asked me to do. He was going into ministry. He says, this is what I need to do. This is what God's asking me to do. I'm going to do it. That's not the decision you necessarily need to make. But are we continuing to make decisions with what we have, with what we've been given, where we have to take a step and do something where if God doesn't show up, it makes no sense. If God doesn't show up, it's not profitable. If God doesn't show up, maybe we're in a little bit of an inconvenient place. And are we willing to do that? People that are lukewarm don't do that. Just be honest. People that are lukewarm say, I'm rich, I have what I need. People who are not lukewarm take those steps. The third thing is this. Don't close the door on what God wants to do through you. I did this recently, okay? Don't close the door on what Jesus wants to do through you. I did this. I had something that came up, and I felt like, I got, I felt like as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's knocking at the door going, this is what I need you to do, right? And I kept going, yeah, but that's going to be really inconvenient. That's going to be annoying, it might inconvenience other people. I could easily have said, this is going to inconvenience other people. Like, I, this isn't even just about me. And Jesus kept going. Like, Jesus is not going away. He doesn't go away, by the way, which is great. But it's kind of, you know, gets to you if you're trying to follow your own voice instead of his. And so finally I had to, as I'm reading this, I'm going, I'm being an idiot, right? I'm going to say this to people on Sunday, and I'm not doing it. So I finally had, I had said yes. And it wasn't any earth-shattering thing. It was just like, this is going to be inconvenient for me. And Jesus is saying, this is what you should do. And I'm just going, I don't want to be inconvenienced by it. 
That's how small it can be. And yet I knew it was something that I should do. And so don't, don't close the door on what Jesus wants to do through you. Use what he's given you, the opportunities, the bandwidth, the resources to say, even when this is inconvenient, even when this is going to make tension in my life, even when this is going to be frustrating, maybe even for me or for somebody else sometimes, take that step that Jesus is asking us to take. The trap that the church in Laodicea fell into was that they had a self-sufficient faith. And here's what I want us to know. A self-sufficient faith is not faith. If we can get by and just be faithful by ourselves, we can provide for all we need. We can do all that we need to do. We can uh, uphold all the commitments we've made and all the things we've decided to be and do. It's not necessarily faith. What I'm not saying is that we do things that are unhealthy, right? We need space. We need margin. We need to make sure that we keep those things. We need to be wise about what we do with our time and energy and resources, all those things we do. But at the same time, if we can self-suffice in all those areas, it's not faith. And when Jesus steps into the picture, when he calls us to go somewhere, he calls us to do something, he calls us to be there, there's going to be a piece of us that is probably going to be inconvenienced. It's just the truth. And yet Jesus still calls us to do those things. So here's the challenge for us, just like it was a challenge for me. What is something difficult Jesus is asking you to do and you haven't done it yet? I'm not saying everyone in this room is in this place, but I'm going to bet that there's at least a few of us that you've been hearing what I heard. What are you going to do? And you haven't done it yet, just like I didn't. So what is it? And for those of us that maybe, maybe there was something, I said that, and maybe immediately in your mind it popped up. I did see some of you smile at me, okay? So I'm just saying. But maybe nothing popped into your head at this moment, but it's going to happen. It's going to come. What's your response going to be? How are you going to answer the door when Jesus knocks and says, it's time to not be lukewarm, time to step out in faith. What are you going to do? Sometimes it's small things. Sometimes it's big things. And either way, we have to be willing to follow what Jesus has asked us to do. I want to land on one more point before we roll. And uh, worship team, you guys can, can start coming up if you want. You know, we, we live in a space and time that's difficult. In fact, I saw something online the other day um, that was talking about millennials. I'm a millennial, okay? What has the millennials' life been like? Well, let's see. We lived through 9-11, we live through two recessions now. Um, we live through a pandemic, and we're on the verge of maybe World War III, and I'm going to be 33 in July. That's what life has been, right? Not the easiest space and time to live. Now, I get it. Most of you were also there. I understand that, too. But that's what it's been like. And we find ourselves in, in daily conversations having to figure out difficult stuff. And I've had people come to me and say, in a very kind, they meant it for good. I believe that wholeheartedly, but they've said to me, I do not envy you needing to raise children and step into this place. And I get that, and I understand why you said but here's what I think we have to understand. What, the church, what Jesus was saying to the church in Laodicea was we cannot be lukewarm, and here's what I believe to be true. Jesus has chosen each of us 
me as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as a coach, as a whatever, to be here at this point for a reason. And he's chosen you guys to do the same. And he's chosen us as a collective, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, if, you're, if you call GFC home, you have been chosen to be the church of GFC at this point. We don't get to just say, well, this is difficult. I'm going to separate myself from that. We get the chance to be Jesus to people at one of the most difficult points in history. And that means that Jesus is putting a lot of stake in us. So we don't get to just say, well, that's going to be difficult. I don't want to do that. Or that's going to be hard. Or that's going to be inconvenient. Or that's too much, right? Or or we just get to separate ourselves and just say, well, that's the culture's problem. I'm going to stay over here. We don't get to do that. In fact, we have to do the opposite and step into those tensions, into those difficult things. And so the, Jesus, the fact that Jesus has chosen us to be the church today for a reason has to take root in our hearts. And we get to be Jesus in all of those difficult situations. And that's not just an inconvenience, that's a privilege. And that's how we have to see it day in and day out. And if we want to be a lukewarm church or we want to be lukewarm Christians, we can say, this is just difficult. I'm just going to do me. I'm going to coast by. I'm going to keep my bank account where it needs to be. And I'm going to keep the stuff that I have and just get through this as comfortably as possible because it's difficult. And that's the temptation. Or we can say, I'm going to do what Jesus asked me to do. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means. But I'm going to show up when I need to show up. I'm going to be in the places when I need to be there. I'm going to be there for other people. I'm going to show up with my resources and my time and my influence. And that's going to be my goal. That's our desire as GFC. And we take that seriously, that we get to be the church at this point in history. We don't see that as an inconvenience. We see it as a privilege. Let me wrap us in prayer and we'll sing one more song today together. Jesus as we've walked through these, you know, our church's values and we've looked through these seven churches in Revelation, one thing is clear, that you have very specific instructions for your church and a very specific direction you want us to go. And that direction does not include being lukewarm. It means living passionately for you and opening the door when you knock and not being defined by what we can accomplish or what we have amassed or what we have done but that we would look past even the blessings you've given us and just say, I still need to be dependent on you. And that's difficult. And it's hard to see what that means and how we're supposed to do that. And it means tension and it means inconvenience and it means a lot of things that we don't naturally want to do. But I ask that you would make the knocking clear in each one of us that when you come and knock on our door, we are more than willing to open that door and to chase after you wherever you want us to go. And I ask that we would not shy away from a difficult world to represent you, but we would see that as a privilege and we would rush in and we would be Jesus to the people who need to see Jesus. We thank you that you've given us each other to uplift and uphold and to encourage as we do this together. In Jesus' name, amen.